Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut, California edition. I'm here in uh, Northern California on Stanford University's campus. Uh, guest of the Hoover Institution. Very pleased to be out here. Uh, we have a lot of... News to get to today, uh, just to give you a, a quick sense of where we will take the discussion over the course of the show. Um, I could do a whole show today on national security, international relations, given what's been going on in the news cycle. So we will certainly spend uh, some time on the bin Laden documents that were just released and what it tells us also about the previous administration. Uh, we'll discuss Trump's trip in Asia and some of the very important strategic considerations for the president and his team while he is over there. Uh, the latest in the Mueller-Russia collusion investigation saga and uh, just other important stories of note that I, I, I'm hoping we'll get to today, but we are going to be very busy here in the hut, so there will be some things that we will have to leave for later on in the week. And also just a quick note, because we are um, down a person uh, Staff-wise, in the Freedom Hut for a couple of days, we will uh, not be taking calls, not because I don't love to hear from all of you, and I cannot wait until we can take live calls again in a couple of days. But just in the for the meantime, um, we will be, uh, for a day or two here, we will not be uh, able to take calls in, which means we'll be getting guests in. It also means it's a great chance for you to write to me on uh, Facebook. So please do, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Biggest news story in the country right now you already know all about. You have 26 people killed in church. Um, You see the same debate happening right now that has happened after so many of these horrific incidents. The uh, politicization of this particular event is especially uh, vicious and nasty because it happened in a small town in Texas— And it happened in a church. And there are many people who are part of the political ideological left in this country who are hateful, who are just full of hate toward those who go to church, live in small town Texas or small town anywhere in America, and are, they think, culturally the other as well as politically the other. This has been a major instance in terms of the fallout. I'll get into many of the details, but I know by the time I go on air, you've probably heard a a, a fair amount, if not a lot, about this horrific mass shooting that just occurred yesterday in Texas. Um, But I have told you before, and I think it's important as a reminder, given what is going on right now with the way the media is talking about all of this, and the way that it is being uh, debated and discussed in the public sphere, that much of the anti-gun discussion uh, 
is really an anti-gun owner discussion. That's why it doesn't matter that many of the policies that are advocated by those on the left wouldn't do anything. That's why it doesn't matter that journalists, people who are paid, whose job is to know what laws are on the books and what is going on around the subject matter they are reporting on, make, when it comes to firearms and the Second Amendment, errors that would be inexcusable in any other part of their reporting. But because they show the the proper stance, which is anti-gun, which is really just another way of saying anti-gun owner. They aren't just opposed to Second Amendment and legislation that has uh, been put in place, a tremendous amount of legislation, I should note, around firearms. They find people who want to own guns to be problematic because every gun owner in this country, the tens of millions of law-abiding, responsible, respectful, patriotic, kind, and decent gun owners in this country. But every single one of them, every time that they own a firearm, it is a little personal reminder to the state that there are some boundaries that cannot be transgressed. The left never thinks of it that way. They see an incident like this, a terrible shooting at the hands of a vile sadist. And yes, from the the Trump lexicon, I think we can borrow the term because it could not be more applicable. A loser. An evil loser. And he kills 26 people. He kills a baby. He kills elderly people. He kills everybody that he can in a church. It does not get more evil. And yet, Within 24 hours, I I was on my way out to California when the news about this was breaking and I was seeing the conversations and people that have a voice, for better or for worse, people with large platforms, those who are able to sway public opinion, whether they should or not, it is true that they can, find that the problem after this mass shooting is, they will say, the NRA. Or the problem is the Republican Party. Or the problem is white males. I mean, they they will find these categorizations that you want to talk about unhelpful and not dealing with the problem or just outright dishonest. Or This is really an, an illness on the left. There's a pathology to crime happens that fits a narrative. Now let's immediately attack a very large group of people that I disagree with politically. Crime happens that does fit in within a, basically crime happens with a gun anywhere. And then it becomes an excuse, a major crime like this, a mass murder. It becomes an excuse for uh, slandering tens of millions of their fellow Americans as if they don't care. You know, there's a problem here because you see exhibited and it's mainly on social media, but it's also in the press. It's on the major news channels and stations. You will see exhibited a, a disdain for those who are Second Amendment supporters. You will see a, a deep-seated and seething disgust with those of us who believe in the right to bear arms, those of us who believe in our right to both protect ourselves and also protect ourselves from a tyrannical government. Should the, should the need arise, um, there are people that, that despise us for that. 
They truly do. They despise us. And they are so riddled with this hatred that in a moment when you have a mass shooting like this and you would think that there would be a, a unified sense of, of outrage and sadness and sympathy toward our fellow Americans who were killed, their families. But instead you see mockery of prayer. A lot of mockery of prayer. And it's so apparent to me that many of the individuals who mock prayer when it is their fellow Americans and that it is Christians would, would never dare take that tone about their fellow Americans if they were praying. If this was a, a jihadist incident, they would not be mocking the prayers of, uh, of Muslims in this country. They would never do that. That would be so distasteful and disgraceful and wrong. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, but why is it only applicable in the one case for the left and not the other? Why is it that there is no level of venom, of uh, vitriol, mockery that can be directed at those of us who are just trying to express some, yes, sympathy and, and yes, prayers? So much smug commentary from the journalist and media and Hollywood class about how prayers won't do anything. Well, isn't that interesting? Because you know what definitely won't do anything? Putting another law in the books that says that Devin Kelly, this mass shooter, um, should not have been able to get a gun because he already wasn't able legally to get a gun because he was guilty of domestic violence. He had a bad conduct discharge from the Air Force. I will say that there is one place that I see a failure here of the system. And the failure is not around gun laws, per se. The failure is that he crushed a, an infant's skull, his stepson's skull. Not entirely, but he, he fractured the skull and served 12 months in prison for that. You should get a lot more than 12 months in prison for, for intentionally fracturing a baby's skull, right? We, we all, you know that, I know that. They're trying to send Paul Manafort away for 70 years for, they don't even know what yet. You crush a baby's skull and you get 12 months? Maybe? All the signs were there with Devin Kelly. There's, there's nothing about him in terms of his character that is surprising to us now that we find out. I've said it before on this show, uh, cruelty to animals is among the biggest red flags for sadism against one's fellow human being in the future, right? That when you see somebody and they're younger and they have a history of cruelty to animals, watch out. It does not end well. And Devin Kelly, sure enough, was investigated for cruelty to animals, for mistreating his Pitbull, leaving it out, abusing it, leaving it in the sun. I mean, it, it's – you think of the uh, 26 who were killed in a church and then you go back into this individual story and you think more about how is it possible for somebody to be so, so detached from their basic humanity? How is it possible for someone to be uh, evil in this way? And you see the commentary that he was posting online full of atheism and, and hate and emptiness. 
And yet what could we have done? Well, that's the question we all ask now, right? You had lawful gun owners who intervened and chased him down and exchanged gunfire with him, or shot him. And then I believe it's, uh, it's been reported that Devin Kelly killed himself, too cowardly to face those who actually could fight back. This guy was a coward. He was a loser. And uh, he was a disgrace to the society, to the country that gave him so much in the way of opportunities and protection. And yet here we are now mourning another mass shooting. I wish I could say that there was something that we could do now that would make this all less likely in the future. I wish there were some policy that I could come up with. But, you know, I study this. I have studied terrorist incidents. I know this isn't considered terrorism because it doesn't have a political motivation, but you have a lot of similarities between the psychology of some of these jihadists in terms of the level of of viciousness and the bloodthirsty mentality and a mass shooter like this. And I, I tell you, I told you after the New York vehicle attack, very difficult to come up with a policy that will stop this we can make some adjustments to immigration policy. That may, that may help, fine. And I'm willing to have that conversation, and, and we did. With Devin Kelly, he's, there are already are laws on the books that he was violating before he went on his mass killing spree. You cannot, it's a federal law. You cannot own a gun if you are convicted of a crime of domestic violence. So he was already facing 10, 10 years in federal prison for, for owning a gun or having a gun. So what is the law that we're supposed to put in place now? It it doesn't – for the left and for the Democrats, the media that are all yelling about this now, it doesn't matter because I take you back to the very beginning of our discussion here. There is an unwillingness to deal with the facts as they are right now when it comes to gun control and gun violence in America because ultimately – The primary motivation for those that are the loudest on the issue is not to do something that would prevent the next attack. It is to show publicly and openly their dislike and disdain for gun owners, for gun culture, for the whole cultural and political apparatus of the Second Amendment in this country. The people who are yelling about how we need to ban assault rifles know that it won't do anything, but they don't like people who legally own assault rifles. And they don't like the way they vote, and they don't like the way they dress, and they don't like the way that they conduct themselves, whatever it may be, right? They, they look down their noses at them. And so by saying we need to ban assault rifles right now, it's not about – because I, I can pull out the statistics. I can show the assault rifle ban didn't do anything the last time it was enacted. But by saying they need to ban assault rifles, what they're really saying is that you, you, America, that owns guns, you are the problem. That's what they want to say, and they're too cowardly to just come out and tell us the truth. They won't say it to our faces, and that's what the policy debate becomes, a mechanism for them to spit in our faces and pretend that somehow it is the culture of the Second Amendment that produced this mass-murdering maniac. It's not the case, and they won't have the argument in the open about it. And that's why we never have any real progress on the issue. We have the same debates over 
and over again. And they keep losing, but they won't stop. They won't stop. We cannot put into words the pain and grief we all feel. And we cannot begin to imagine the suffering of those who lost the ones they so dearly loved. Our hearts are broken, but in dark times, and these are dark times, such as these, Americans do what they do best. We pull together. We join hands, we lock arms, and through the tears and through the sadness, we stand strong, oh so strong. President Trump trying to comfort uh, a nation that once again is in mourning because of a, a terrible mass shooting. 26 killed, many more uh, grievously wounded. You know, I always, I always feel like in these incidents as well, the people speak about the wounded, and I think there's usually, for those who haven't been around uh, trauma, whether in a war zone or the kind of physical trauma we're talking about here, wounded uh, can mean a life forever altered. Wounded can mean missing a limb, can mean paralyzed. Uh, so the dozens of wounded, in whether it's recent terrorist acts or in some of these mass shootings, uh, they, they are, as I said, forever, forever changed, and they are part of the, the horror of this entire situation. President Trump said that this is we're, we're trying to get to the we know that we know who did it. We don't believe there's any connection to anyone else. There's not some cell we're trying to break up here. President Trump spoke about mental health here as a major issue in this play clip, too. I think that uh, mental health is your problem here. This was a very based on preliminary reports, very deranged individual, a lot of problems over a long period of time. We have a lot of mental health problems in our country, as do other countries. But this isn't a guns situation. I mean, we could go into it, but it's a little bit soon to go into it. But fortunately, somebody else had a gun that was shooting in the opposite direction. Otherwise, it would have been as bad as it was. It would have been much worse. But uh, this is a mental health problem at the highest level. It's a very, very sad event. It's a, these are great people and a very, very sad event. Now, I understand that there is pushback from those in the, uh, in the medical community about saying it's a mental health issue because it's really, with this individual, it's really just more of a, he was a bad guy. He was an evil, bad person. And to say that it's a mental health issue is almost to make it seem like this is a, a disease that he caught, that he wasn't able to deal with or in control of, right? So we'll get into some more of this. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We hit about 95 going down 539 trying to catch this guy until he eventually lost control on his own. He just gave up. He just kind of, he went off in the ditch, hit a, hit a hay bale from what I could see, and then he just never moved after that. He just hurt so many people, and he just affected so many people's lives. Why wouldn't you want to take him down? 
That was Johnny Langendorf on going after this uh, suspect or this mass murderer. I mean, he's dead and we know he did it. Uh, Devin Kelly. Uh, going after Devin Kelly right after his uh, vicious murder spree. Uh, but Johnny Langendorf wasn't having it. Not on, not on his watch. He, he went after him. And help chase down. There could have, look, he could have, this guy could have shot more people, uh, might have continued on in the area where he was. Um, but Johnny Langendorf is a good Samaritan and a, and a Texan. And he wasn't going to allow this to go without taking action. He decided to take action. There are still good people. In fact, most of us are good people. Most of the people listening uh, to this show, to any show across the country, uh, quite honestly, are. Uh, good, decent, kind, law-abiding, patriotic Americans. That, that is still our defining characteristic. Right? We can't lose sight of that while these incidents happen. And we are also much, it, it feels like they are much closer to us because of the, well, I know for many of you, you're in Texas and it's actually physically in close proximity to you or it reminds you very much of your town. But I mean because of the way that we now can uh, see and read about and be updated on these events and the families of those who were killed. We see their uh, we see their photos, and there'll be endless uh, news stories in the days ahead on on every aspect of this. We have much more psychological exposure to a mass casualty attack like this than we would have even a few decades ago. Um, it is omnipresent. If you allow it to, it will consume your day to day, and it will really upset you. And I, I understand where that – you have to draw that line where you create the space for yourself or you, you, can't, you can't allow yourself to get drawn too deep into, too deep into you know, what, what was it like and you know, could I, why wasn't I there? Why couldn't I have done something? Because it will paralyze you. You, know, you. you just won't be able to continue to, to function and take care of yourself and your family and do what you have to do. You, you create these psychological barriers, I think, to really spending – uh, your full time and energy engaging in the subject matter here because it is it is hard. It's hard to even think about. Um, it is our obligation, I think, to look at an incident like this and try to figure out what, if anything, could have been done. I don't think that there are uh, laws that need to be added or changed, nothing that I see quite yet, although I do see some failure in the system. There are some problems. So let's let's be clear. Let's be honest about that. Let's not in any way try and uh, skip over that. Not that we would. I, I think it's one of the more disturbing uh, phenomena of the way these events now have turned into shouting matches online between people who either, many, in most cases, don't know each other, but you know, in the media I see things written and, and said from individuals who are uh, supposed to be better than that. It's supposed to be more mature, supposed to be more professional. And they are willing to either themselves believe or at least pretend to believe for others who do believe that, as one, uh, one imbecile with millions of people following on Facebook, on Twitter, just so, so millions of people, right? I'm not talking about some random commenter on some troll site somewhere no one's ever heard of. He's got followers in the millions and saying the NRA is a terrorist organization. How – first of all, that doesn't even 
it doesn't even have any real meaning other than just to be a slander. I mean, it's it's a nonsense statement, but that's out there. And there are many others, too. The, the mockery of prayer, the mockery of gun owners, it just all comes together in these incidents. And what you see is that there's one side of this debate that refuses to give even the least bit of credit to the other side. There, there is no good faith in this discussion among many who are influential in the national conversation about this for, for one reason or another. There's no good reason at all. I'm always amazed at people that I know. Here's a, here's a good example of this. In New York City, I, I'll come across socially, uh, you know, just, just meaning not like I'm walking around at, uh, at lots of cocktail parties in the Upper East Side. I haven't been to a cocktail party in the Upper East Side, and I don't, I don't know how long. Um, but I'll, I'll come across people, and, and they'll be knowledgeable and educated and, you know, on most things. And then they'll have very strong opinions on guns and have absolutely nothing in terms of a baseline of knowledge, understanding of the subject matter. Just they are ignoramuses and proudly so. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, people say it doesn't matter if it's semi-automatic or automatic. Well, you're advocating for an automatic weapons ban. So I think it does matter, you know, and and you already basically can't get an automatic weapon. So don't don't go around yelling about how you how Trump is evil because we need to have an automatic weapons ban because of the most recent shooting incident, and then say that it doesn't matter if it's automatic or semi automatic. But but you see, once you push back and you deal with the facts, and th- then you start to see it's really just they just don't like people who own guns. They they because th- people who own guns are often people who and now this is not true across the board right but this is the stereotype so let's understand the stereotype is people who own guns live in red states they go to church and actually believe in church it's not just like a social thing where you get you know free cookies afterwards or something Uh, they tend to be pro-life they tend to be uh, pro-america they tend to be pro-military they tend and and you add all this up right they tend to be pro-traditional marriage you add all this up and you see that Guns are just a stand-in for all these other social issues. And that's why there's so much animosity because does anyone really think that whether it's me or any of my uh, compatriots in conservative media, does anyone really think that we're not as horrified and, and upset and bothered by what happened in Texas as any of these commentators or news outlets that are saying that we need to ban guns or we need to go with the, the Australia model? Or, you know, it's the same debate, same thing every time. I'd say that's deeply offensive, right? Or it would be offensive. And I don't mean offensive like, oh, I'm going to go in the corner and and be sad about it. I mean offensive like I would like to see some of these commentators actually say that to my face or anyone else who takes the position that I do. And I know there's a lot. There's a lot of of folks out there. A lot of my friends in, in the media take this position that, okay, let's have this discussion about guns. Let's have a discussion about how to stop the next attack. But don't tell me you want to have a discussion about how to stop the next attack and then say a bunch of things that are not true about gun laws right now and then draw all these uh, wild uh, false equivalencies and uh, between this and jihadist violence. This has become the, the big trope now of the anti-Trump resistance. Oh, oh well, if, if this had been a jihadist, what? We would have, we would have been so much more upset? I mean, what does that mean? We're upset because 26 innocent people were killed. Many others were shot at church. It's, it's horrible beyond 
beyond imagination. As I was saying, you can do psychological damage to yourself just by thinking too much about how terrible this situation was and, and spending too much time thinking. On it. I, re- I really mean that. I mean, you can uh, you can create a circumstance for yourself where you're, you will get depressed. That's how powerfully evil this was. It, it would be different if, if we're talking about jihadists. How? In what way? Well, yeah, there'd be different policy takeaways, sure. But isn't that isn't that of, of course? Isn't that what we would expect? But they say this like, oh, well, if it had been a jihadist, you'd be really upset. Or, you know, look what happened after Las Vegas versus look what happened after New York. Okay, I do. And I see that after Las Vegas, we still want answers, still don't have all the answers. We're at, a lot of conservatives are the ones who are asking for answers on Las Vegas, myself included. More information, like the more clarity, less less mistakes in the information given to the media by the authorities. That would be nice. And sure, if there's a, and I was saying, if you want to regulate bump stocks more, I'm, I could foresee that being reasonable enough because we already have a lot of gun regu- like, uh, a lot of gun regulations on the books right now. We already have a lot, tons. They vary state to state. There are federal laws. There are state and local laws. A lot of them. So. That means that we're not in a, uh, in a very free-for-all Second Amendment environment to begin with, and anyone who says that we are just doesn't know anything. So I'll have this debate. I'll have this discussion. But I just wonder, after what happened in New York, what we're conservative saying. Maybe we need to look more at, at immigrant vetting from foreign countries that produce a disproportionate share of terrorism. That seems completely reasonable to me. I don't see what the problem is there. That's, it's not hateful. It's not, and it directly, it directly looks at this issue that happened in New York, right? It, it's okay. This is these were the these were the circumstances of the case in New York City. What could have been done to prevent it? Looking at it and then making choices based upon that line of argument, that line of thinking. With this shooting in Texas, what is the gun law that we are supposed to change now? There is reporting right now from uh, USA Today and elsewhere that the Air Force failed to flag Devin Kelly as banned from buying weapons. That essentially the Air Force was supposed to pass along information for the FBI for the database uh, because he was convicted of domestic assault and under federal law would not have been able to purchase a gun legally. Well, this would be what we would uh, you know, refer to as a mistake or a mess up. This is an error. This isn't a failure of policy. This is the imperfection of a system on display. Could it be fixed? Sure. If it can be fixed, let's fix it. If there's a way for the military to do better reporting to the FBI, if someone does get disciplined under UCMJ for assaulting their spouse and breaking the skull of of a baby on purpose... You know, that's I will say also, if there's a failure in the system that I can identify, it's one that the information may not have been passed along the FBI, which I think is just error. I don't think I think that's human error. And I've worked in bureaucracies and I can tell you, we can pound the walls and yell about how we'll never make human error again. That's that's just nonsense. There will be errors. You can try to mitigate them, limit them. Sure, let's do that. I'm not familiar with the process by which the Air Force would notify the FBI or how that's supposed to go, but. We can look into that. Absolutely. That's a legitimate discussion, and that's, that should happen. But the law is already there. 
This guy never should have been able to buy a gun. And it was illegal for him, regardless of notification, to have a gun. It was on him as a gun owner. He was still an illegal gun owner. It just did not get flagged to prevent him from purchasing via the FBI. So, okay. We look at that now. We'll try to make sure that there is no breakdown in communication. There will be, but let's hope there are fewer so that there's the possibility of preventing a situation like this from happening again. Although, as we know, there are plenty of other – the guy just could have bought a gun illegally off the street, and we can go through all the different scenarios. Uh, And then you just – when you look at anyone who would do violence against uh, against a an animal, I also think should be banned from gun ownership. Period. Meaning, anyone who is guilty of cruelty to animals, anyone who has been charged with that, because that is such a an indicator of a dangerous psychological state. You know, somebody who would tie up and and as this uh, Kelly. Uh, reportedly did tie up and beat his own dog. Uh, I think that's also, anytime you have a charge for that, I think you should also be banned from uh, owning a firearm. And that's just, now that's all, that's my opinion, but uh, that may be a law that we add in there too. You know, these are, these are legitimate discussions to have, but they're based on the facts of the case, right? This isn't about just, oh, let's ban everything because we're going to ban things because we don't like people who own guns. That's uh, a worthless conversation. It's not even ha- it's not even the conversation that's had in good faith. Oh, one more note, and then we'll go. And by the way, I, I meant to mention that we will be talking about how we are pr- getting pretty closer to what could be a massive Sunni Shia conflagration in the Middle East. I, I mean, a big war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We are closer right now than we have been in a long time. I'll get into that in the next hour. That'll be a buck brief, uh, but just keep a. Uh, keep your ears out for that one. But one more before I go into break here. And I, I could talk to you about this all night, and I know we've got other subject matter I want to get into as well. And that is that all you have to know about somebody to know their character, to know whether you can trust them, to know whether they are a good person or not is do they do violence? Like, would they engage in violence against a child? That's it. It's all you have to know. So with that on someone's record, uh, there should be flags for firearms ownership, which I know there are. And it seems that this just didn't get the information wasn't transmitted, but there are already laws in place for that. But we, we could look at that and make sure that this is uh, not a situation that could ever slip through the cracks because violence against a child, that's just uh, that, that's game over. With some, when you know that about somebody, you know they're a danger, they're of, of bad character, and you need to take precautions. And also, if there's real violence against a child like we saw in this case, long prison sentences. Thank you very much. You know, I, I'm amazed that you know, you'll get 20 years under uh, you know, post-financial uh, meltdown for trying to discard documents that are involved in like a federal accounting fraud case. 20 years you can get for that. But you go to prison for 12 months for breaking a baby's skull? No. Something's, something's wrong there. So we are going to get into, uh, in just a few minutes here, I'm going to talk to you about the uh, possibility of a major military conflict. A, a war. We could say war, right? I sometimes get caught up in saying things like I'm some kind of a a robot. It's, it's a habit from the old analyst days where you 
speak about limited incursions and, uh, I don't know, a precision strike and kinetic versus non-kinetic activity. I mean, kinetic activity makes it sound like people are talking about whether or not you're going to be outside playing ball or inside playing video games. As those of you listening who have been in this world know, going kinetic is a big deal. Uh, It means that there will be military action taken. It means things will get shot, blown up, and people will lose their lives. So the uh, Saudi-Yemeni story, because it also ties in to the broader Middle East right now, including places where we have U.S. troops, and we don't just have interests, we have people and personnel who could quickly come into harm's way. Uh, This is, is a reminder that, unfortunately, as much as many of us would rather not spend uh, our time thinking about working in and trying to fix the Middle East. We may not care all that much about the Middle East, but the Middle East, unfortunately, cares about us, or at least is going to cause problems for us uh, for the foreseeable future. So we'll talk about that. And then also a very compelling uh, analysis of the recent bin Laden document release from uh, Stephen Hayes over the Weekly Standard that I wanted to just give you my my take on, and if I have time as well, these this series of, of bombings in Sweden that no one's talking about. And how, how could there be bombings in a very peaceful, low-crime country like Sweden that get no attention? Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. All right, we are we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. A missile strike fired from Yemen. At Riyadh, the Saudi capital, in fact, fired in the vicinity of the Riyadh airport. Uh, That is a clear act of war. Now we'll get into who did it, what's going on, and as importantly as anything else, why we should care. Now this is not just a regional squabble in a region that has far too many squabbles. I am well aware of that. The Saudis have replaced the Egyptians, just as some context before I get into the specifics of the incident. The Saudis have replaced the Egyptians as our most important Sunni Arab ally, especially in a military sense. And the Saudis are now our counterweight against Iran, in Iran that we have seen in Iraq has far more influence on what's going on day to day and on the ground than we do. And in Iran that got away with bullying our Kurdish allies, threatening them, shooting at them, and is flexing its muscles by supporting various terrorist proxies around the region, including al-Qaeda, which does not get nearly enough attention. And I'll bring that up in a few minutes when we talk about the bin Laden documents. Because we are told that there are these simplistic ways to view Iranian support for terrorism. You know, they're Shia. And the Sunni-Shia schism prevents the Iranians from fully backing terrorist organizations that are Sunni. And 80% of the Muslim world is Sunni and not Shia. 
And yet Hamas, which is a Sunni terrorist organization, has Iran backing it. And al-Qaeda has a much cozier relationship with the Iranian state than we have been led to believe, especially under the Obama administration. I wonder why. Could it be that wagering the future of the Middle East on a deal put together by the deeply unimpressive diplomatic squad of John Kerry and company, uh, could it be that a deal with a, with a re- regime that wants our destruction and that is in bed with al-Qaeda, that, that that's not a smart move, that that was not worth the previous? Of course, you know the answer to that. But let's get back into what happened here with the Saudis and why I'm telling you. The Saudis are important to us as a counterweight against Iran. And we have our differences with the Saudis and we have places where we can work with them and where they are very uh, helpful, even essential at times in the Middle East. They have been working with us against the Islamic State, but the Saudis have been buying a whole lot of very fancy weaponry now for a long time, and they are a considerable regional military power. And that has led them to have their own adventurism streak or interventionist streak. And that's brought them into Yemen, where they have been engaged in a campaign, mostly from a campaign from the air of airstrikes against the Shia Houthi rebels. Now, I know that this is where we could all sort of take a moment and say, oh, OK, Buck, now we're talking Houthi rebels in Yemen. What does this have? You've got you've got the Islamic State running around Yemen. You've got Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula out of Yemen. You've got a central government that's had to flee the capital city. You've got a civil war going on in Yemen. Why do we care about all this? Well, as you know, terrorist entities that operate in failed states and the vacuums that are presented as a result of a failed state, whether Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan, parts of Pakistan, parts of Nigeria, the Sinai Peninsula off of Egypt, Mindanao, the southern island of the Philippines. I mean, these are all places where they're far away. We don't care. But there are terrorists operating there, including terrorist groups that specifically want to come at us. They want to train people or encourage people or work with people to kill us in U.S. cities and towns or to kill our people abroad. So we can't entirely go. So that's part one of why we care about Yemen. But there's also a much bigger struggle playing out right now in the Middle East. And as I say this to you, we have still U.S. troops, what, about 9,000 in Afghanistan, although I think the number has been upped recently, a few more, a few more thousand. Uh, so we'll call it around 10,000. And then you have, gosh, I don't even know what the number is right now, five or 6,000 U.S. troops in Iraq. Who knows what we have in, in Syria and Iraq that we don't even know about. Uh, we are involved still. And we have ships patrolling the the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, depending on who you want to ask. Uh, and just in the region, we have a lot of a lot of interest, a lot of things going on. And what's happening right now is you're seeing an alignment between Sunni and Shia across the entirety of the Middle East, and the leaders of those two factions on the nation state side. Those uh, the, the countries that are at the at the head of their respective sectarian factions are Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia is the Sunni Arab leader in the region now. 
uh, it is in terms of population and money and military capability now. A, it, it's, it's a player. And the Iranians and their revolutionary regime and all the efforts that they've been undertaking now for decades to militarize and to create these relationships with groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Assad regime in Syria, the Shia militias and various Shia politicians. And uh, the Iranian influence in Iraq is one of the very unfortunate legacies of the Iraq war. Uh, they have a tremendous amount of leverage there. And then in, also in, in Bahrain, you have a Sunni-Shia divide where the Iranians are unhelpful. And in Yemen, you have the Houthi rebels who are Shia who are getting support from Iran. And this is a civil, this is like a civil war over the course or a sectarian war that is transnational, that's going on in different countries, and they have backers based on sect. And this all has to do with the, for those who want to know, I mean, Shia comes from Shiat Ali or the partisans of Ali. And the Sunni are those who are followers of the Sunnah, the tradition of the prophet. Uh, so there was a leadership schism after the death of the Islamic prophet Muhammad in the 7th century. And there were battles fought. And you can, to us, I mean, pe people don't know, they don't care, they don't think about what happened with, uh, at the Battle of Badr and, and these different critical fights among the various factions, power, uh, power plays going on in the 7th, 8th century Arabian Peninsula and, and broader Middle East. Uh, but they have ramifications that affect us to this day. One of the reasons why I like to talk to you on this show and do my best to bring you the most relevant historical information about all of this is you, you can't understand the Middle East without understanding the history. It's just not possible because they are steeped in it. They, they you know, some of these Militants may not be the least bit conversant on, and in fact, they aren't generally conversant on uh, the Enlightenment thinking and the the great literature of Western civilization. But they can tell you about the Battle of Badr. They can tell you what happened to Ali. They can tell you about the Shia's history of lamentations and the Shia Muslims' persecution. They're only about 20, 15 to 20 percent of the Muslim population globally. Their persecution at the hands of the Sunni majority and how that factors into uh, so much of, of their thinking. And, you know, this is now do you care about this? Should you have to care? Well, when you have an Iranian backed mil militias, to, not really, you know, a re rebel faction, we'll call it in Yemen. And remember, Yemen is just an appendage of Saudi Arabia in terms of geography, right? The and, and the Saudis have been building a fence to try to keep out the Yemenis for quite a while and prevent smuggling and human trafficking on their border. So the Saudis believe that, border, that a border fence works, I should note. Uh, but the Saudis have been trying to – and Yemen is one of the first countries – it is believed it will be the first country in the world to truly run out of potable water. When you add that on top of all the other problems that this country is facing, uh, it does not have a bright future. And it used to be a place where people would go to, you know, they would go to study, study the religion of Islam. And it was supposed to, because it was not developmentally uh, very advanced, it was a great environment to try to mimic the lifestyle and habits of the prophet in the 7th century. 
So there was a certain allure that Yemen had for those who uh, radicalized and became hardliners. They would travel there, and then they would try to get, in some cases, they would try to get, this is the uh, al-Laki model, right? They wanted to get linked up with al-Qaeda or with the Islamic State. But the Houthis are backed by Iran. And the Houthis just fired a missile at Saudi Arabia from Yemeni territory at the Saudi International Airport in Riyadh. That's a big deal, everyone. I mean, you, you think about this now. Uh, if, if, I mean, I, I can't use the, I mean, I, I love my Canadian brothers and sisters so much, I, I can't use them as the example. But I mean, I guess we kind of have to here. If, if someone, if there was a fight going on over the future of Montreal, and all of a sudden you had missiles fired at JFK Airport in New York City, and they came pretty close, and they had to be intercepted by the U.S. military, we'd have, we'd have a big problem, right? We all would understand that that would be a major issue. And the Saudis have publicly, and this is reported today, the Saudis have publicly accused the Iranians of an act of war. Uh, this is how real wars start, right? This is how war war starts. Countries are firing missiles at other countries' airports, using proxies to do it. But I think that there's a sense in the region, well, it's been around for a long time, but maybe now it's the, uh, the last straw, that the Iranians' use of cutouts and various factions, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, Shia militias in, in Iraq, or you can just go down the line, all, all these different terrorists. Oh, the, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, I mean, name a terrorist, the Iranians, it, it, name an Islamic terrorist group, the Iranians are like, we got, we got work for you. We got something you can do. We could work with you on this. We'll help you out. That's the Iranian approach. Because any, any jihadist entity gives the Iranians strategic depth against their real enemy, which is Israel in the West and America. That's, that's Iran's true enemy. They know that. That's the only existential threat. And we're an existential threat to them, not so much because we believe in regime change, but because we are a constant reminder that they are not a powerful, uh, they're not a powerful regime. They are not a global power. They're not even really a regional hegemon yet. And we could kick their butts and they know it. And we're much more prosperous and much happier than they are. And the regime doesn't like it. Our existence threatens the existence of the Iranian regime because our existence proves that Iran is a lie, that the revolution of the mullahs and all this 1979 revolutionary Islamic theocracy talk is just garbage. It's just garbage. It's just an excuse for for tyranny and bureaucratic sloth and oppression. So the Iranians can't be friends with us any, and I don't mean I, I don't mean the Iranian people. I'm talking about the government. The Iranian government can't be friends with us anytime soon. We know that, and that's not going to change. But if you have more open conflict between the Saudis and the Iranians, uh, then you could see a spiral effect, right? If all of a sudden the Iranians openly, because the Iranians deny any connection to the Houthis in Yemen, if they openly start fighting it out there, then it might turn to, well, what happens when the Saudi, when the Saudi airstrike against ISIS actually hits a faction of Iranian IRGC in Syria? What do you think, what do you think the Iranian response is? And, and then what happens when you have a, there are Shia terrorists that operate inside Saudi Arabia, I should know too, there's a Shia faction in, in Saudi Arabia. And what happens when a, you know, a mosque in, uh, in Riyadh gets blown up, right, or, or Jeddah? 
uh, all of a sudden you've got a, a mass casualty event at the hands of some Shia militant faction that the Iranians put up to it, right? You, you see how quickly that can escalate and turn from a series of small conflicts into big war. And a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia would be ugly. It would be very, I mean, you look at how ugly the war was between Iraq and Iran. It was actually the, lar- the longest, I believe, the longest declared war between nation-state belligerents in the 20th century. I think that is the case. It went on for nine years. Uh, I, might be, I, I might be missing the specifics on that statistic, but I think, I, I know it went on for basically the entirety of the 80s. Uh, but I think it was the longest declared war of the 20th century. So uh, we pay attention to this because this could light the whole Middle East on fire really fast. And it's troubling. It's very troubling indeed when you see a missile fire. And just a missile fired at an airport? What's the Saudi response if that Houthi missile takes down a plane with 300 people? The Saudis are going to do what? They're going to say, oh, yeah, it it wasn't really the Yemeni government or it wasn't really Iran. I mean... I don't want to know how they would respond. It's this is very dangerous stuff. These are even for even by Mideast standards right now. This is a precarious time. All right. So I was mentioning to you before about the bin Laden documents. And here's what's very interesting about this. I have not had a chance yet to read the bin Laden journal. There are a, a tremendous amount of documents were just released. What was it, last week? There are 470,000 documents from uh, the Osama bin Laden raid, and they're finally now out there in the public domain. I think there are redactions in many of them, but they're out there in the public domain. Uh, here's what's so interesting about this. I know you think, oh, come on, the bin Laden raid was a while ago. Okay, well, why were they just released now? Why did the, why did the Obama administration only allow for a, a grand total of – 571, according to the Weekly Standard here. Some very interesting reporting from an analysis from Stephen Hayes over the Weekly Standard. He's saying, okay, so they released 571, and you had the Office of the Director of National Intelligence announce, uh, announce on the almost last day of the uh, Obama administration that this was going to close the book on the bin Laden uh, on the bin Laden documents. I mean, that is crazy. The, the official statement was, today marks the end of a two-and-a-half-year effort to declassify several hundred documents recovered in the raid on Osama bin Laden. Okay, so that was 571. Now we have 470,000. So, yes, I have not had – I read quickly, but I have not had all of the time for that uh, to read. So I need to go through it more. But here's what Hayes is saying about what's in this uh, document or what's in these documents. And that is that the whole narrative of Osama bin Laden as frustrated, lonely, Al-Qaeda as defeated and destroyed and everything else, what if it's not true? What if as we go through these documents, and that's what we're beginning to see, Al-Qaeda actually was planning massive attacks, uh, felt like its ideology was still spreading around the globe, And there is an entirely different view of al-Qaeda that needs to be out there in the public than the one that we were given by the Obama administration. Because remember, bin Laden was dead, General Motors was alive. That was the slogan for re-election. Also, what if 
while the Obama administration was mortgaging the rest of the United States' Mideast policy and interests uh, to try to get a deal with Iran, what if it was clear from these documents that the Al-Qaeda-Iran relationship was much stronger, much more clear than what had been previously publicly stated by the administration? Would that have affected how we thought of Obama and his diplomats bending over to try to do everything they could to get a deal with the mullahs in Tehran if we knew that they were shoulder to shoulder with Al-Qaeda? That is in these documents too, my friends. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, we've been discussing a lot of national security today on the show. You have President Trump in the early stages of his much-anticipated trip to Asia. He had a an interesting moment where the press, or at least CNN, decided to deceptively edit a video to show him throwing the rice when he was at a koi pond with Prime Minister uh, Abe. And they made it seem like that was bad. But in fact, Abe threw the rice, all of it at once afterwards or before he did, too. So that's all just the media doing nonsense. But let's actually focus on the policy angle of all of this for a moment. To do that, we have Michael Oslin on the line. He is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. And his latest book is The End of the Asian Century, War Stagnation and the Risks to the World's Most Dynamic Region. Michael, great to have you. Thank you, Buck. Uh, first off, what are what are the takeaways or what are hopefully going to be the takeaways of President Trump's first major trip to Asia? Not not a pivot to Asia, a visit to Asia. Well, what I think it, the, the key for the president and for the White House is to show that they're going to remain engaged in Asia. There's been a lot of questioning. There were certainly questions over his comments during the campaign. Uh, a lot of fear uh, in Asia, especially among allies, that he might consider changing the alliances with Japan and South Korea. He did pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. So overall, there was a real big question. Uh, was he essentially ceding the limelight to China? And I think this trip is designed, at least in their minds, to try to get uh, the Asians to understand that Trump may have a different approach, he may have some different emphases, but he is going to be engaged in Asia as much as the Obama administration. Biggest challenges facing the administration in Asia right now, other than North Korea, although I'd like you to speak to the North Korea problem as well, uh, but what, what, are the, what are the non-North Korea nuclear program issues that Trump really needs to focus on? Well, I think the big one is, is actually countering this impression that this is China's moment and China is, uh, you know, hoovering up all of the, the attention, the influence, the power in Asia, and that the U.S. is going to be relegated to being a bystander. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping uh, has come out strong this year, starting right in the beginning of the year when he went to Davos and in the wake of Trump's election and basically held up China, you know, somewhat ironically as, you know, the guardian of the the open global trading system and and the like, in in essence, a guardian of liberalism, which, of course, it's not. Uh, And she just has come off, Xi Jinping has just come off a very successful five, uh, you know, five-year party Congress held every once, once every five years where he's been anointed as the most powerful man in China since Mao Zedong. So, you know, this is a moment where Asians are looking at Xi Jinping wondering, for example, will he leave office in another five years or will he stay on? And thinking that this is a not only a more powerful, but in, in many ways a more aggressive and more assertive China than uh, they have been used to for a long time. So 
Trump needs to counter that. I think he needs to counter it with a very clear set of American policies and initiatives. It would be very nice to see him argue that uh, America is going to be restarting trade talks, even if they're bilateral trade talks. Initially, he was not supposed to go to the East Asia Summit, and they changed uh, to extend the visit to include the East Asia Summit, and that's very important. Otherwise, it just would have been a China show, and all the spotlight would have been on Xi Jinping. So it's really, I think it's really about China other than North Korea. We're speaking to Michael Oslin. He has a book out, The End of the Asian Century. Uh, and, Michael, I want to ask you, because I think there is a perception, and, and it's, it's a perception that I would uh, understand why people have it, that it's just a matter of time before Asia, particularly China, uh, overtakes us economically, uh, that the Chinese government's uh, hybrid capitalism, statism model, it was very popular with intellectuals and in this country some years ago. People have backed off that for a number of reasons. Uh, but there was a time when I'm sure you remember Tom Friedman and others writing about how, you know, the, the China model of, is really how you get things done. But there is a perception that we are just biding our time until China becomes, not among everybody, but people think this, uh, China becomes the dominant global power. Just a question of when, not if. You seem to take a view that that is way too rosy a picture from the uh, perspective of how great China is going to be in the future. I think it is. I, I think, look, no one can deny what China has become. And if you're old enough, and, and I'm just old enough to, you know, remember a world, no world where China wasn't that powerful and wasn't that influential. There was always the potential. But certainly over the past 20 years, 25 years, China has uh, done something that is almost unprecedented in world history in terms of its development, the creation of a middle class, and, and the like. Um, but I think those are those easy years are over. And, and to be truthful, they weren't all that easy. Uh, you know, and you have to, as crazy as it sounds, give the government and the party the credit it deserves for uh, guiding China down this path and, and guiding it relatively peacefully, at least until until recently. There's been a lot of oppression. There's been a, a lot of things that we haven't wanted to look at, what's been going on inside China. But overall, in terms of the, the grand sweep of Chinese history, this has been a, a very peaceful period and a period of unprecedented growth. But uh, I think we're going to look back and we're going to say that that period came to an end right about now. Uh, we've seen a dramatic slowdown in the macroeconomic numbers from China. We know because of the uh, the enforced one-child policy that they are now about to enter a period of demographic slowdown. Do you think there's labor. some fakery, by the way, in their economic numbers? I hear a lot of people who oh, follow sure. China. The, yeah, No question about it. Uh, and the problem is, we, we just don't know how much. So you either say, well, look, I'll be skeptical, but I'll take their numbers. Or there's just no way for me to even get at that. But there's no question. No one, the Chinese themselves don't believe the numbers, and they tell us that. So for sure. <laughs> so so uh, definitely, there's, yes. There's dramatic economic slowdown. Uh, you know, they've destroyed their environment. Uh, there is deep distrust of the party and the corruption within the party. Uh, Xi Jinping himself has helped exacerbate tensions with almost all of China's neighbors from Japan to India to uh, Southeast Asia. Um, the only one that he seems to have moderately uh, good relations with is Russia, and I wouldn't bet on that lasting for a long time. So I think the bottom line, Buck, is, is that going forward, the next generation, the next 20 years, 25 years of Chinese history, I think are going to be a lot more difficult. And at a minimum, at a minimum, we're going to see them not as 12 feet tall, but as as you know, as what they are, which is a an extremely powerful and extremely important country, but one that faces the same type of problems as the rest of us. And it is not, you know, the wonderland that Tom Friedman paints it, the that used to be us type of country. 
One more thing I want to get into, Michael. We've only got a few minutes, but you have a very interesting piece here on The Atlantic. Trump should help keep North Korea keep its nukes safe. I, I, I knew we'd get to North Korea, but I wanted to bring the audience into discussion about what really matters with regard to China first. But now North Korea, huge in the headlines. Kim Jong-un uh, in this war of words with Trump. We keep hearing about it. What do you think needs to be done here? Well, look, the we are out of good options, and I think everyone recognizes that. And, and I think you have to cut the administration um, some slack, or if not cut it some slack, certainly feel for it because it's been handed a completely raw deal by the Obama and Bush administrations before it. Uh, there really are no good options. I, I wrote that piece because my assumption is we're not going to go to war with North Korea. It is both too risky, and the idea of preventive war post-Iraq in the United States, I think, is it's just a bar too high. I don't think you can you can get to it. So that means we're going to accept a world in which North Korea has has nukes. The only way we're going to denuclearize North Korea is through a massive invasion and a takeover of that country, which, by the way, the Chinese won't allow. So on the assumption that that doesn't happen, and granted it's an assumption, we have to learn to live with North Korean nukes. And what worries me the most is not that Kim Jong-un wakes up one day and says, you know, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nuke L.A. because that, that would mean the end of his regime or nuke Tokyo or even Seoul but rather that having nuclear weapons is an extremely difficult and complicated process. We've been doing it for 70 years, and we make mistakes all the time, some of them near catastrophic. The Russians have had catastrophic accidents. So if we, if we do wind up living, which I think the odds are, living in a world with North Korean nukes, we have to make sure, ironically, and, and as crazy as it sounds, that Kim Jong-un actually has a safe and reliable force, that he doesn't have someone who panics and turns the button, the key at the wrong time, that he doesn't have uh, bombs that don't have safety switches, that we don't know how their wiring is so that a, a rocket lifts off. All of these things actually can happen. And non-proliferation, and, of course, on top of all that, which has always been a concern. non-proliferation on top of it, right, so that you have, you have dangerous nukes spreading throughout the world. Uh, we don't know how to deal with this. We have no idea what his command and control mechanism is going to be like, how they're going to respond in a crisis, if they're going to have trained crisis management teams because one of their missiles has been damaged. Uh, all of this is open. And what I think we're going to have to do, and, I, and I've heard um, some talk about this from parties and quarters in China, because believe it or not, they are worried about this as well. They, they don't want to help us with North Korea, but they are worried about this, is we may have to try to figure out a way that China and the United States, and I know this sounds bizarre, actually try to try to help Kim Jong-un get a safe and secure nuclear arsenal, because the very last thing we want is one of these things going off and hitting Omaha, because they don't know how to be a nuclear power. Um, this is what failure looks like. We have failed for 25 years to prevent a nuclear North Korea, and so we really have to seriously start thinking anew about what it's going to mean to live in that world. I give you a lot of credit for uh, for outside-the-box thinking on this one, Michael, because obviously North Korea with nukes is still, from a, from a policy and a political standpoint in this country, considered completely unacceptable, and everyone says it's unacceptable. And yet, in a sense, it kind of reminds me about a, a discussion that I've been involved in in the past at the policy level and now in the media level about Afghanistan, which is what we're doing will not work. People can talk about how if we do it more, if we do it harder, stronger, better, it will work. What we are doing there will not work in Afghanistan. And I think what you're telling me is that we need to have a similarly honest, bleak mentality about what the reality of North Korea nukes will be. 
Unfortunately, I think that's the truth. You know, look, it, it's, we don't like admitting defeat, but we have to admit that we have failed for 25 years. This is the one thing that, that multiple presidents have told us we won't have, and we have. Now you've got to figure out how you're going to live with it, because there's no way they're giving up these weapons short of a massive war. And that massive war is not simply us going in. The Chinese will be involved, South Koreans, Japanese. It would make, Buck, by the way, Iraq and Afghanistan literally look like a cakewalk. The, the, the specter of a war over North Korea, the collapse of that regime, and what could happen out of that would, would dwarf anything we've been involved with over the past 16 years. Um, so we, got it. we have to figure out what is the prudent way forward, uh, what is the responsible way forward, and it really does require some out-of-the-box thinking. It doesn't mean we're happy about it, but it means you've got to think out-of-the-box because you can't wish these things away. Facts are stubborn things, and they're going to have them. Well, I just appreciate you're not coming on the air and saying, we're just never going to let North Korea get nukes. And then my follow-up question is how, and then it turns into a lot of, you know, strength and diplomacy. So, you know, I I think it's important to look at this stuff with honesty and and clear eyes, even if it's pretty terrifying in the process. Michael Oslin, everybody, Hoover Institution Research Fellow. His book is The End of the Asian Century. And after this interview, I can tell you I'm going to pick up a copy. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Buck. You know, I saw these reports over the weekend that there was going to be a, another round of charges from the Mueller investigation. I saw a report that General Flynn, they had enough to charge General Flynn. I'm just wondering why we have not had any follow-up on that. Usually, this information is a leak, either from the grand jury or from Mueller's investigatory or investigative whichever we like to call it, uh, investigation squad. And in this case, we don't see anything yet. And I wonder why that is. Uh, They could be working a deal behind the scenes. They could not. This could also just be fake news. I don't know. But I did see in the last 24 hours, they said a Flynn indictment that Mueller has. this This was NBC News within the last day. Mueller has enough evidence to bring charges in Flynn investigation. No charges as of yet. So uh, there is that. There is also a story that is uh, of much greater interest to me and I think to you as well that comes courtesy of The Hill and The Hill's John Solomon. Early Comey draft accused Clinton of gross negligence on emails. Let me just read to you a bit from this piece uh, written by Solomon. An early draft of former FBI Director James Comey's statement Closing out the Hillary email case accused the former Secretary of State of having been grossly negligent in handling classified information, newly reported memos to Congress show. The tough language was changed to the much softer accusation that Clinton had been extremely careless in her handling of classified information when Comey announced in 2016 there would be no charges against her. Well, my friends, uh, this is one of those stories that is quite significant, but the media is going to pretend that it's not. It is very meaningful, but you will not gather that from the nightly news broadcasts. Because here's what it tells you. That gross negligence or was grossly negligent, that that was included in the initial description of what Hillary Clinton did on her with her email server. And remember, it was more than just an email account or a few errant emails here or there. It was a server set up in a private home for the business of the Secretary of State so that she could control the record. And then there was the 
hammers and bleach bit and the erasing of emails. I mean, it was so obvious that this was shady. I mean, this was a this was a, a volcano erupting with shadiness. And yet no charges. The reason that it matters that Comey would have had gross negligence in the initial statement, even if it was a statement that was going to exonerate Hillary or not, not really exonerate her, just to say the charges won't be brought. It's not really, it's not really totally the same thing, but it matters because if Comey had stood up there and read out what Hillary had done and had read that gross negligence was the assessment of the FBI looking into her handling of classified information on her server, which she was only doing because of her incessant desire for control. And I think she has a preference. I know some people, I've come across these people in life who prefer to break the rules. They derive some joy out of it, or they just, they they can't operate within the boundaries drawn for them. So they prefer to find the shady way to do it. The dishonest way, the method that uses subterfuge, or that is uh, in some way, lacking in integrity. I think Hillary's one of those people. But that Comey would have read out gross negligence in her statement would have been the equivalent of saying, well, you know, this guy, you know, he's, uh, so he took, so, you know, he, he, he took the, uh, the bank uh, money and, and he, he stole it and he walked out of the bank with the bank's money and then took it home to hide it and he threatened force in the process of acquiring the funds, but uh, and he was armed. So this was a robbery, and he was armed during the robbery, but we would prefer not to refer to it as armed robbery. So we will not charge. He would have walked through every single possible aspect of the statute on mishandling classified information for which she was guilty over a hundred times. And adding gross negligence would have meant that the state of mind would have been irrelevant, which would have meant that there was no way to not charge her. So Comey, the case against Hillary was so clear that Comey had to change his own wording so that there'd be some legalistic way of extricating her from criminal charges. But we can all see this, right? The fix was in. We've known that for a long time. But this just goes on the pile of reasons to believe and to know that Hillary was guilty and should have been charged. And they had to they had to literally change language to avoid charges against her while she's running for the presidency, everybody. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Okay, team. Good of you to be with me here in the Freedom Hut, California edition, up in Northern California, visiting the uh, Hoover Institution and uh, spending some time on Stanford's gorgeous campus. It's a very lovely place, uh, I have to say. Uh, but I want to get into some political discussion right now. I wanted to talk politics. And to join us in that, we have our friend Sarah Westwood on the line. She is the White House correspondent for the Washington, Washington Examiner, and she's going to talk to us about all the things. What's up, Sarah? Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. All right, let's first start with your piece in the Examiner, Why Robert Mueller is Making K Street Republicans and Democrats Sweat. You pose the question, you answer it. What's going on with that? 
Well, it's a really fascinating aspect of Mueller's investigation that I think probably gets lost these allegations substantiated. But here we're talking about a practice that a lot of people familiar with how K Street works say is relatively common among lobbyists, which is there's become this informal understanding among Democratic and Republican lobbyists alike that the Department of Justice just doesn't enforce the rules surrounding foreign lobbying, that more and more lobbyists are choosing not to disclose their activities because they know they're not going to get caught. And so it, it was interesting to see that the Mueller and Gates indictments seem to be built around their failure to register their lobbying by Activity under the yeah, the, the foreign foreign agent FARA. registration foreign agent registration act, right? Farah and I think I think you, that the moment that you start to dig into a lot of high profile international lobbying, uh, they can find a, a bunch. I'm willing to bet a lot of Farah violations and failures. Exactly, I think that's why you're seeing this have a greater effect of, on K Street just than just the few firms that have had their work described in the indictment. So we already know that uh, the Paul Manafort group has been come under enormous that The Podesta group, led formally up until last week by uh, Tony Podesta, the brother of Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, is also under scrutiny for first failing to register their activities in Ukraine and then allegedly, according to Mueller, falsely representing what they did in Ukraine. And then Mercury Public Affairs, which is a third and more Republican-leaning lobbying firm, seems to be specifically caught up in this particular scheme. But I think that a lot of the nervousness comes from this fact that the, the Mueller probe seems to be expanding rapidly, seems to have a, a domino effect where anyone who had been involved in this tangled web of, of influence jockeying uh, is getting caught up in it, and there's no real clear indication where Mueller will stop digging if he starts to find a lot of illegality. What about the charges that we are told are ready to go for General Flynn in this whole Mueller probe? Do you have any, any sources talking about this, Sarah? Any insights on what's going on there? Because it sounded like we were about to get another indictment drop, but it didn't happen today. It didn't happen today, but, uh, you know, we're hearing the same sorts of things that General Michael Flynn, he's always been considered one of the top targets of this investigation. Uh, for one thing, it was a similar violation of FARA that he's alleged to have committed that he did not disclose and then potentially misrepresented his activities lobbying for the government of Turkey. And so it wouldn't be entirely surprising to see him get hit with an indictment just because, think back to when this was first starting to mushroom back in May and June and July, the two names that we heard mentioned over and over and over again were Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn as, as facing the, the most likely targets for an indictment. And uh, we're speaking to Sarah Westwood here, everybody. She's White House correspondent for the Washington, Washington Examiner. Sarah, I want to switch gears for a moment and get your take on what's going on with the tax bill. I just saw some news that a uh, the, the, the scoring of the tax bill from one of these places that does tax bill scoring. I'm trying to remember. Influential think tank. Which one is it? I forget which one. Anyway, there's a think tank out there that says we've got to redo this. Uh, and then you got Paul Ryan saying this is going to happen this year. Uh, play 16, please. 
Thanksgiving. Yeah, I feel very good about it. I think our members are very excited about this. We're pleased with what we've rolled out. And this is what we said we would do when we ran for office in 2016. We have to have tax reform. We have to have tax cuts for people in the middle. This delivers that, and we really are convinced this is going to help get our economy growing and reaching its potential. You have to do this in order to do that, and that's why we want to get it done this year so we can have a very good 2018 and get stronger economic growth. And so, yes, we're on track for moving this through the House before Thanksgiving. That's our plan. We expect our friends in the Senate to be about a week behind us. Okay, that was Sunday from the House Majority Leader Paul Ryan. And then today we get the Washington Post with the following House Republicans' tax bill would increase taxes for 12% of Americans next year, according to a new report from the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. By 2027, it's a long way away, but at least 28% of Americans would see their taxes rise. Many of those people taking a hit would be people who make less than $48,000 a year. What do we make of this, uh, Sarah? Is, is this a problem? Have they, have they run into some, some issues here with the tax plan? Sarah? We lost Sarah. I was wondering where Sarah went. I think she's, you know what happened there, Dramos, is occasionally I switch, you know, we're having fun talking about the Mueller investigation, and that's some intense stuff. And then you go into taxes, and everyone's like, taxes, come on. <laughs> taxes just aren't, aren't that exciting. So Sarah's like, I'm out. She just dropped the mic. Anyway, we appreciate Sarah joining. Uh, on ta- I will answer my own question now because we don't have a, a White House reporter who's talking to all the folks down in D.C. about this. And that is that they were, I don't think they're going to taxes done this year. And you could say, well, Buck, how would you know? And I could give you a lot of complex explanations for it. I could tell you that it is uh, because, oh, I don't know, they're, they're not really sure about how they're going to handle the long-term budgetary impact. And, you know, there's a lot of that. Or I could just be like, you know, the Republicans can't get stuff done, and I don't think that's changed. I don't think that's changed quite yet. I think that uh, there will be some problems. Oh, Sarah wanted to come back. She does want to talk taxes. Well, well, hello, Sarah. Aloha. What's going on? Hello. I tried my best to escape, but it didn't work. Oh, I didn't even hear what happened. Would you, we get you in a tunnel there or something? Is that what happened? No, I don't know what happened. Uh, okay. So, so, so we, we got everyone across the country listening. They, they hung out. They did not get up out of their chairs, I promised, <laughs> and leave because you, you dropped off because they knew you'd come back, Sarah. Uh, taxes. Is ta- are taxes going to happen? And, and is this nonpartisan tax foundation redoing of the scoring of the bill an issue? Or is it you know something that only people who read the Washington Post will care about? Well, it's an issue insofar as the opposition to the tax bill and the Republican Party really seems to be coming from conservatives who are concerned about how much the tax reform package would add to the deficit. And so if there are a series of more examinations of this bill that show that it's going to cost a lot, that might not conform with congressional rules, that it might uh, do something Republicans have long railed against, which is to blow up the deficit for a tax cut policy that doesn't call for corresponding spending cuts, then I think it might have some trouble. But at the moment, there does seem to be momentum behind it. This is a product, obviously, of months of work where lawmakers tried really hard not to repeat the mistakes that were made during the health care conversation. And so uh, there's certainly a, a better chance that we've ever seen that this might happen. So the news, the news late last week, as I'm sure you saw, Sarah, was that the, that, that the interim DNC chairwoman uh, Donna Brazil 
had said that there was a disagreement and she was stunned. And look, it, I will say for her, great publicity for her book, right? I mean, that's now people are talking about Donna Brazile's book, which until now, until this, nobody cared about this Donna Brazile book anyway. But it's been great publicity and we've all fallen forward in the media because we're like, oh, my gosh. But now, now that, it, that, that she's gotten all this backlash about it, people are saying, well, hold on a second. In fact, she's saying, hold on a second. Here, play clip 10, please, Mr. Dramos. Do you agree with Elizabeth Warren that the primaries were rigged? I, I don't think she, she meant the word rigged, because what I said, George, as you well know, after I left this show back on July 24th, I said I would get to the bottom of everything. And that's what I did. And I called Senator Sanders to say, you know, I wanted to make sure there was no rigging in the process. I'm on the Rules and Bylaws Committee. I found no evidence. None whatsoever. The thing, the only thing I found, which I said I found the cancer, but I'm not killing the patient, was this memorandum that prevented the DNC from running running its own operation. Um, I'm pretty sure that's that means it's rigged. So I'm kind of wondering what is she parsing? Is she backpedaling? Is she changing her mind? Well, what's going on here? Uh, well, I think she faced uh, maybe a surprising amount of backlash from Democrats who. Them still rushing to Hillary Clinton's defense. You saw that the the actual text of the memo Donna Brazile described in that explosive excerpt was leaked in BC and presented in a way that suggested maybe Donna Brazile had exaggerated the nature of the agreement. Although if you actually read the text of it, it's pretty clear that she was it was accurately described in that most of the provisions also applied to the primaries, not just the general, like the Clinton campus tried to argue. But regardless, I do think that she risks tarnishing her own reputation within the party if she tries to take down powerful people with her. With this well, but, you so, know, the, the narrative last week, and I, I believe this, I was saying it, I know others were saying it too, was clearly the Clintons are done if it's safe for Donna Brazil to come out and do this. Well, now it looks like actually maybe it wasn't safe. Maybe she was trying to sell books and she caused a problem for herself. Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's going to be a painful process for Democrats, right? They know they're heading into 2018. They know Hillary Clinton is unpopular. She's continued to remind folks of that with this book tour. She's in the headlines every week. It has been a headache for Democrats. So they are starting this painful process that probably will process that will be a start and stop situation where they are trying to sort of cut her off and let her float off into the distance from the Democratic Party so they can start looking for who will be their standard bearer, who will speak for them in 2018 and, and looking on to 2020, that can't really happen until there's an acknowledgement that Russia didn't steal the election, that voter suppression didn't steal the election, that she was a flawed candidate. Sarah Westwood is the White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. I feel like we got, uh, you know, double Westwood today, two interviews out of you. So I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Great to have you. Everyone go check out Washington, uh, WashingtonExaminer.com for Sarah Westwood's latest there. And uh, we will come back. Sarah, thank you so much. We'll be uh, back in just a few minutes here. I, and one thing that I, I did not ask her, which is I wonder if at some point maybe Hillary, after this whole thing happened with Brazil over the weekend, Donna Brazil, I wonder if Hillary just called her up and there's just one question that Hillary would want to ask Donna. I mean, there's one thing she would have to want to know here, which is, what happened? So what happens if you... What happens? Sorry. 
I didn't, I didn't even mean to do that. But so, what would happen if if you were to uh, yell yell some something profane at or make an obscene gesture in the direction of a presidential motorcade? It, it, unless it's a threat, it's completely legal, right? I mean, you you couldn't curse and threaten the president as his motorcade was driving by. That would get you in trouble. But you could certainly curse, and and you wouldn't get arrested. You could even use an obscene uh, single-digit gesture and wouldn't get arrested. I mean, this isn't Thailand, right? You don't go to twenty. You don't go to prison for twenty years for insulting the monarchy. Or I believe also recently in Zimbabwe, a journalist got in a lot of trouble for saying something about Mugabe. Right? There are countries where. You say the wrong thing about the leader, you get locked up. In a lot of countries, actually, where you say the wrong thing about the leader, you get locked up. This is not one of them. But here's the thing about freedom. comes with a price, right? We have freedom from government intervention when it involves commentary or expression that is, you know, non, that is not about violence or imminent violence. But do we have the right to keep our jobs no matter what we say or do in public? This is a, in the social media era, this debate has changed dramatically and keeps changing year in and year out. This woman, um, she fli- this is the quote from the Washington Post, flipped off President Trump and got fired from her contracting job. I don't know how many of you saw this. There was a photo that went viral, probably not in your Facebook feed or Twitter feed or, you know, email sent to you. But in, in a lot of in a lot of Democrats, you know, it might have made the way made its way in there of this woman who has uh, given the, the uh, one, you know, given a one-finger salute, or it's not a Bronx cheer. I, I forget what the different ways of saying it are, but you know what I'm talking about. Gave the middle finger to the uh, president's motorcade. And now she's fired. And she's very upset about this. I don't know how many times we're going to go through this discussion, but or through this, a version of this, but just because you hate Trump doesn't mean you can say anything you want to keep your job, right? Whether it's a person in the media or just even a private citizen. Now, I don't like the fact that we now live in a society where private conduct not associated with an employer can get you fired. I disagree with it in principle, but not legally in practice, meaning that I can't begin to say that a private entity, a company – could um and she's she it says government contracting job i assume she's a private sector employee who does work for the government as some people do um but you know a a private entity can still fire you for for legal conduct i I wish we didn't live in a country where that was the case now but it is it is because if we're going to live in a country where you can also be fired for using the wrong pronoun for someone or uh, if we live in a country where you can be fired because you want to express your views on any number of political issues, then we definitely live in a country where you're going to get fired for going viral in making a profa- uh, profane, not profound, sorry, profane gesture at the president. And that's just the way that it is. Uh, and that we will now have this routine of the, the media going through the anti-Trump martyrdom complex here about, oh, you know, she's just expressing herself and Trump. Could you imagine if someone had done the same thing and gone viral with an Obama motorcade? 
uh, not only would they be fired, I'd be worried about that person's I really I honestly would have been worried for that person's safety because there were uh, left-wing loons out there who would have taken it upon themselves to get some sort of justice for the Obama administration. Uh, so in this case, this woman decided to go and tell her employer. She, her face wasn't shown in the photo. She told her employer that she went viral, that this was her. Uh, she was in Northern Virginia, and they fired her. And now she's very upset, and she says it's not right and it's not fair. Um, well, it may, and it may be unfair in the sense that if we lived in a country that wasn't punishing people on a routine basis for their political opinions – uh, that private employers weren't so politicized now and so afraid of boycotts and other pressure campaigns, then sure, we, we could all be adults. But you see, the the issue is that we're not all being adults anymore, and we haven't been for a while, meaning that we're not treated like adults. Uh, the doctrine of if I'm offended, you can't say that has overtaken the academy, media, uh the law now, in many ways, you know, you create a hostile workplace, a hostile environment for somebody, and there, there can be problems for you. Uh, you free speech is increasingly a fiction as a concept. Legally, it still exists, but keep in mind that's once the culture changes, then the laws change too. So I am very. This is why the left is so obsessed with uh, hate crime legislation and policing speech and speech codes on campuses. And finding different ways, you know, making defamation of, this is a big thing at the UN too, and I know Canada and some other country, UK, defamation of religion, which they just mean don't criticize Islam. That's what defamation of religion is all about. Uh, that's a big push. Because as I always tell you, you control the language, you control the debate. And that is a big effort on the left. Anyway, yeah, this woman got fired. Yep, that's what's going to happen sometimes. Private companies don't want to deal with the fallout. I wish that this were not the case, but it is the case. So there you have it. I mean, I also wish that people weren't such idiots that they would show disrespect to the president. But, you know, we live in a free country, right? But freedom comes at a cost. And this woman just found out what that cost is. Many of you asked over the weekend uh, for updates on producer Amy's uh, wounded pup. Uh, He's actually not technically a puppy. He's a very large, full-grown dog. Uh, But Amy uh, has told me that... He is fine. He had to get some stitches, and they were a little worried about his eye. Um, but a dog came after him, attacked him. So it was a it was a it was a dog attack against another dog. Um, and uh, Amy was very worried about her, about her pup, understandably, and so she took him to the hospital, and that's why she was out on out on Friday. But he's going to be Kai is the dog's name. He's going to be okay. Uh, but we were very concerned, very concerned on Friday. I, I know any of my family, I have a few family members who have dogs, and it, they've, it's just like it's such a, a centerpiece of the of the family, and it, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't want to think about it. They, they were very, very upset at the notion of their dog, anything bad happening to the dog. So we're glad Amy's dog is okay. I just want to give you that update. So last night I flew out here to California. I, I sometimes talk to you about airlines. Because um, I don't like airlines, and I, I think that there's a lot of a lot of people say things. Oh, that's what the market will bear, and people want cheap flights. Yeah, 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 I don't know about that. A lot of regulations too, a lot of government intervention. 
a lot, a lot of nonsense going on, a lot of taking advantage of people. You know, I, I think about how recently I had to deal with a, a, an, unscrupulous, uh, an unscrupulous person um, that I had uh, given uh, money to, and that money was supposed to be given back to me. And I went through the process of now figuring out, okay, well, I'll win if I, if I go to – it wasn't a lot of money. But I'll win if I go to court, but I don't want to have to go to court because it's pain. And it would be small claims. And if it's small claims court, that also means that there's really no mechanism for enforcement for the judgment at the end. And so I had to just accept that this person, who's done this before, I'm sure, uh, knew that he could uh, just create – frustration for me and my time is valuable to me and my uh, sense of well-being and focus on what I'm doing. I mean, I want to focus on this show and what matters to me. I don't want to focus on some dispute with somebody who uh, has in good faith and contractually agreed to uh, pay me money and, uh, or I'm sorry, give back money to me, give back money to me and chose not to do so and then said, well, I'll give you, you know, a third of it, and then it's a half of it, and then it, and I, and eventually it just turns into how much more of this do I want to deal with? But it, it's troubling because I go through life, and I know all of you listening do the same. I go through life where my my word is my bond, and my handshake has has meaning, and I I do right by people. Maybe in a sense I do right by people because almost out of a selfishness. Because I can't, I can't feel good about myself if I lie to somebody or if I am dishonest with them. I, I can't sleep well at night if I feel like I've cheated somebody or, or, or I have cheated. Uh, so that's just, you know, there, there's a self-interest in, uh, pardon me for, you know, pardon me for my, I'm so humble, it's awesome, right? But there's a self-interest in virtue um, or there's a self-interest in honesty. And that's how I feel about these things. And so... I, I, I pay my debts. I try to stay out of debt, but I pay my debts and I expect the same from others. And so when I go through the process of, oh, someone is just choosing to be dishonest because they know that there will be a, uh, there will be a point at which it is no longer worth my time and effort to chase their dishonesty down um, and will just agree to a, essentially a settlement on their dishonesty, then uh, it, it bothers me. It bothers me because I know there are so many other people out there that are dealing with that. Some of you listening, I'm sure, are dealing with some. And you can probably guess that when do you give somebody money and then they have to give money back to you and, you know, and they don't necessarily have to and it's not a lot of money and it's month to month. And, you know, yeah, you get you, you could probably figure out the situation. But I just don't want to get into the details of it. Uh, but, you know, there are some people who are in a situation like the one I'm talking about, but it's money they really need. You know, it's the money they need for their uh, for their mortgage or for that car that they need to buy or for, and there is a a, a sense of a, a helplessness that you have uh, when others are dishonest. There are mechanisms in place, there are processes, and you can seek redress. But as somebody who has a lawyer in the family, whom I consult whenever I need to. Uh, I, those are not good systems. Uh, you, you will be very disappointed, and you generally want to avoid. First of all, here's a little tip for those of you listening: you generally want to avoid bringing lawyers into anything if you can avoid it. I'm just saying. And any of your friends who are lawyers, if you're at the, oh yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, probably the, the second fastest way to go bankrupt after a 
nasty divorce is getting involved in extended litigation. Um, so you don't you don't want to do that. You want to stay away from you, <laughs> except for all the great lawyers listening that I'm going to need at some point to help me with you know negotiations or whatever. But you 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 want to avoid lawyers if you can because it's very expensive. That's just a fact. And the processes of setting right what has been done, what is uh, how you have been wronged, is very expensive as well. So I just it was a, it was an interesting experience that I went through recently. I was thinking about giving you updates on it as I went, not because I. Uh, want to just share aspects of my life with you that you may or may not find, you know, amusing. You may be sympathetic. You may have dealt with something yourself, but just it, it influences the way I think about a lot. Uh, especially as a conservative, I think because we have a decency and a sense of fair play at the core of our philosophy, it is off-putting. We can almost be a bit naive, um, and I, I'm speaking in very gentle terms, and you may be like, "Buck, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a shark, man. You can't, you can't catch me on, you can't catch me napping." Fine, but you know, I go through life thinking that someone shakes my hand and says, "This is how it's going to be," until they prove otherwise. That's how I assume it's going to be, right? I mean, that's my inclination is to is to act with honor and to give others the benefit of the doubt when it comes to issues and 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 propositions of honor. And when that is gone or when that has been taken advantage of, it's, it really sticks with you. This was, in fact, an issue where it was the principle of the thing. I, the money I didn't actually care about. The money didn't really – I mean, I'm sure, I care, right? But it didn't you – know. I'm not going to be sitting around lighting my, uh, lighting my Cuban cigars with $100 bills because of this, right? I mean, it was, but it was the principle of the thing. And it was somebody being dishonest. And, and there was no question on the dishonesty. It was just – and, and I think both parties understood there was dishonesty. I knew he was being dishonest. He knew I knew he was being dishonest. But what am I going to do? You're going to go to court? You're going to figure this all out? Okay. So instead, I took a thing. So that's just one example of where I feel like the one, the, the conservative impulse, the philosophical conservative impulse is to, yes, I know, contract law and contracts are the basis for civilized society, but also to act with honor and to expect honor from others when you may not get it. And that can be troubling. Um, and then on the other side of it, too, we also tend to believe, well, the market will fix it. In theory, yes. In, in, a, in a perfect world, in a perfect environment, the market will deal with things, right? But not always, meaning that there are circumstances, you know, if you fly into some town as an out-of-towner and you go to a restaurant and the restaurant treats you really, really badly. I mean, they spit in your food. They... You know, you know, you know, we don't like you here, sir. You should leave. You know, whatever, right? I mean, you get treated really badly. You can write a nasty Yelp review, and you can hope that their treatment of other people like that will result in the restaurant getting less business and it will close down in the future and everything. But actually, you just had your night ruined, and probably nothing's going to happen to the restaurant. That's reality. We'd like to tell ourselves that there are mechanisms in place and, you know, the market will speak. And, well, yeah, but no, you probably just, your night just got ruined at this restaurant, but that doesn't mean anything. And that's the way I feel about airlines. See, this is a long way of talking about how I feel about airlines, which is that, sure, in the aggregate, over time, they may respond to um, revolts among passengers. And if there's really bad, uh, bad press for them, there may be you know, when they, like, drag somebody who's paid for a seat off a plane and abuses him and everything. I mean, th th then there might be redress. But by and large, airlines are the equivalent of the person that, you know, has agreed to, has agreed to do something for you and then doesn't do it. And then you're like, well, what do I do now? 
And I know they'll say, oh, we have, you know, carriage contracts and no, you have to read the fine print and everything. Yeah, but, but let's be realistic. That's not how it works, right? I mean, you work with the air, you fly the airlines you have, you know? <laughs> there's, not really a, there's not really another option out there for us, and especially for work. Many of us are expected to go places. And so, for example, last night when, uh, when I'm flying Virgin Airlines, which I usually think of as a good airline, and they decide right before we take off, that we're just going to make another stop. Oh, wait, but we all paid for the whole, it's a full flight, right? Like 200 people on this flight. We, we all paid for a direct flight, but now we're going to make a stop. I mean, do you know what our redress is in that situation? The redress is zero. And it just meant that the, the, the equivalent of some, someone who's looking to maximize profits at Virgin is like, you know what? We're, gonna, we're not going to take on more fuel here. We're going to stop in another city. And, and it added about three hours. So there were 200 people last night who had three hours of their time and, and uncut, not just stolen from them, but put through three hours of, you know, you're on a plane for quite a while. It's uncomfortable. It's annoying. Um, you know, I was back in coach because that's how I roll. And it was very uncomfortable. And it just, I realized, you know, the, the, I could bring a conservative economist on who would tell me, well, you know, it's very, people are more price sensitive than comfort sensitive. And I, I understand all the arguments, but ultimately Virgin Airlines just stole three hours from hundreds of people because they could and because nothing's going to happen to them. That's it. That, people can give me the other, oh, but in the long run. And, and airlines are, are, are fantastic. And this is what I really want you to take from my little rant here. Airlines are a fantastic teaching tool for what it would be like if government was in control of as much as Democrats want them to be. Airlines are, are a, a great real-life introduction to full-on statism. The explanations for things don't make sense. They tell you what to do. It's expensive. It's uncomfortable. You have no rights. You have no redress. You are you are uh, uh, discomfort. Not discomforted. Maybe that's not the right word. You are put out. You are uncomfortable and annoyed and angry, and you have nothing you can do about it. You can you can whine and no one cares. And if you whine too much, they kick you off the flight. It's like statism. It's like going into a government office where they get paid no matter what. They don't care. And yeah, they're supposed to fix your problem, but they're not going to. Didn't you read the fine print? What are you going to do now? I was very, you know, it was very disappointing last night. I usually think of them as being a pretty good airline. It was really, um, I, I was shocked at just how inept the whole thing was. Really? You're going to just like, there's no, it's not a weather problem. I mean, I, I'm a reasonable guy, right? If there's thunderstorms, there's thunderstorms. You know, if the plane has a mechanical problem, it's got a mechanical problem. This was a plan. This was just a planning thing. Oh no, we're just going to, yeah, three hours. Sorry. We're going to take on fuel there because it's better for our schedule. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, that's great. Uh, and it really is uh, – it's like the guy who wouldn't give me back my money. Theoretically, sure, we could all revolt and say it's a terrible airline and write Yelp reviews and, and trash them publicly for this. But, I mean, we all just want to go home and live our lives, right? So ultimately, they get away with it just like the guy who won't give me my money gets away with it. And as somebody who, as I said, operates from a place of honor, integrity, and truth, I really dislike it, which is why I, why I dislike airlines. But I will also say it's why I think that airlines are a fantastic teaching tool. Between the whole TSA experience and the airlines all in one, you're like, oh, so this is what it would be like if we lived in a full-on statist America. This is what it would kind of feel like day in and day out, just frustration and orders and 
feckless wastrels, just bureaucrats that don't do anything, telling you, yeah, that's the way it's going to be. Oh, okay. I see, I see how it is now. Airlines, man, the best, the best teaching tool for a totalitarian society. I, I mentioned it before, of, and, and it's really a visual, so it doesn't translate into radio. But earlier today, CNN did this thing where you had Prime Minister Abe uh, of Japan and Donald Trump, and they're, they're feeding – they're at a, sh- a shrine, I believe, and they're, they're feeding carp, and it's rice, and I don't know the background of the ritual. But anyway, it's like a, a, a nice ritual thing that the two premiers are doing together. And they start out kind of sprinkling, sprinkling some rice over the koi pond, koi being a – breed of carp and miliwake which means the good land uh and they are sprinkling the the rice out and then trump kind of does this thing where he's like all right and and they zoom in on him and you see him flip over the the rice bowl and pour it all out like you know i'm done here i'm done with the rice and the media made this whole thing of it and sure enough there was a there was video of, of both of them and Abe did it first. He flipped the whole thing over. He's like, all right, I've had enough, right? And then Trump's like, yeah, right, I've had enough too. Boom, you know, and it was all over. But they made something out of that. And it's just a perfect example of why you would be – it would be foolish and naive to approach the anti-Trump resistance left-wing media, however we we choose to describe them, to approach them without skepticism. You must approach them with skepticism because these errors that they make come from a place of ideology, not from a place of a good faith mistake. And I just thought that this was yet yet another example of, I mean, how do they make that mistake? They zoom in on Trump. Do they really not know that Abe was there? It just, I don't know. I I want someone to explain that one to me, how how that is an error that, happens um anyway and it did but there, there's also some in the media who are beginning to do their own version of you know, let's have a discussion let's talk about how trustworthy the media is and this was a great a great moment in fake news uh you had savannah guthrie of nbc who is saying the media makes some mistakes and then she turns to a just a fantastic source for media trustworthiness play 17 no one will be surprised that you have an impassioned defense of a free press in the book. And I mean, there's a, a recent poll that said nearly half people thinks the media make up stories. I mean, the, the media itself is under fire. And, and what do you think the media needs to do better to enhance its own credibility? And what do people need to understand about the value of the press? Well, first of all, those of us who are, are in the media, I prefer the word press because we have freedom of the press. But let's set that aside. We need <laughs> okay, to all right, job. all right. In case you didn't job. know, it doesn't I'm matter what he says, really. We can... That voice, I know because I interned for that voice a very, very long time ago. I was 18. Gosh, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, that voice belongs to Dan Rather. Well, as you know, those of us in the media are, you know, it's very important for us to continue to think that this is just a theatrical exercise where we sound trustworthy. But Dan Rather is being asked by a highly overpaid NBC TV host. What we can do to be – or what the media can do to be more trustworthy and more fact-based. She's asking Dan Rather as if the guy who ran with forged documents and at the time was one of the biggest media figures in the country, one of the biggest news media figures in the country, 
forged documents to throw a presidential election, and they will turn to him in seriousness and ask about media credibility and bias and honesty and Big J journalism. I mean, they made a movie about this guy called The Truth that is a lie. And like this NBC, Savannah Guthrie, I've got an idea. How about you don't ask Dan Rather how to make you more unbiased? All right, Shield Tie, I got to close it out from the Hoover Institute here today. Shield Tie, everybody.